Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the back-to-school debate continues, are schools safe to reopen as soon as possible? Experts also say the holiday period accelerated what was already an alarming trajectory before Christmas. The provincial modeling is set to be released tomorrow. What can we expect there? And long-term care homes are finally getting some vaccination relief here in Hamilton. Hamilton's Director of Emergency Center, Paul Johnson, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The kids, for the most part, are not supposed to go back to school. Uh, and now, when I left you just before Christmas, uh, as the story was, uh, this was supposed to be the return day for, for school. And, of course, last week the government announced that they were not going to do that, in spite of some medical advice to the contrary. Uh, there is a, a letter that's out there right now suggesting, uh, by a number of doctors, suggesting that the, the schools may actually be the safest place for kids uh, to try to counter the COVID-19 numbers that are rising and rising and rising. There is a, an open letter that was written by a number of doctors uh, to that that point, uh, which obviously the, the provincial government seems to have paid little or to no attention to. One of the co-authors of that letter is Dr. Mar- Martha Fulford, who is the Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital in Hamilton South Sciences. And uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I, I got to think I'm speaking for an awful lot of people, Doctor, when I say I'm confused uh, by what the government is doing, the mix, mixed messages that we're getting through, uh, the advice that they're getting or not getting or not heeding, as the case might be. Uh, you know, they seem to be pretty sure about the fact that, no, they got to go back to school. I remember the education minister uh, being pretty adamant about that before Christmas, that, no, that this is okay. The numbers indicate that schools are not a problem. Uh, they changed their mind uh, just a couple of days ago, and, and I know you and a lot of other doctors are very upset by that. We were surprised. I think uh, any intervention or anything that that we do has got uh, the conversations both about the potential benefit of that intervention as well as the possible harm. And though I know it's easy to point fingers at schools, and, and certainly there has been a fair amount of this, when we actually look at the numbers, and I'm not just talking about Ontario. You could look at British Columbia. We could look at the United States. There's evidence out of Norway, out of the U.K., out of Finland, and in fact, even the United Nations put out a uh, review uh, in November that looked at the data from over 190 countries, and consistently what has been shown is that children in schools are not the drivers of the pandemic. Now, this is, of course, not to say that a child can't get it or that you might get some transmission, but one of the, uh, what I keep calling good news stories about covid is the almost minimal impact it has had in terms of causing disease in children. And clearly they're bearing a huge brunt of the cost of our reaction because they are being devastated by things like school closures, but they are not getting sick from COVID. And as it turns out, they are not the main drivers. And we could look at the numbers, we could parse them down, but it's not just Ontario or government saying this. And it's not that there are no cases in schools but that this is not where we are seeing the bulk of, of transmission. And what we're seeing is the opposite. When we start to see increases in the community, then not surprisingly, when we go hunting, we'll see increasing cases in schools. But it's not starting in the schools, and it's not being amplified by the schools. 
And, and that seems to be the, the sticking point here in any conversation, which I guess is now turning into a debate, Doctor, about this. Uh, when we see the cases rising, as they have in Ontario over the last number of weeks, mm-hmm. the, the debate seems to be, well, because the, and the, the number of, of, of elementary school children uh, seem to be on the increase slightly more than we were expecting it to be, too. Is it because they're starting it, or are they simply a reflection of what's going on in, in, in their community? Yeah, well, it's two things. It's, it's reflection, but we have to be a little bit careful with the numbers because during the fall, every child with, with the, the tiniest little symptom, uh, of course, had to get tested before they were allowed to go back to school because the schools, mm-hmm. in fact, were doing a remarkably good job of monitoring and, and putting in measures to control transmission. And when schools shut down, that, that imperative to, to test every child with the smallest symptom went down. So while over the break the percentage of positives went up, that's because the actual number of kids was much smaller and the, and the number of kids that were being tested were actually those who required testing. So we have to be a little bit careful about comparing the numbers in school and after because the proportions are different. So sure, they're going up a bit, but, but it, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with schools. The CDC, actually, in the United States, and I think we'll all agree that the U.S. Has, has not done a very good job of controlling the pandemic, mm-hmm. they put out a report in December, I think it was December 16th, that looked at uh, risk factors uh, for children uh, testing positive for COVID. And what they found was that attendance at, at out-of-school gatherings weddings, funerals, other types of activities was more strongly linked with being COVID positive than being at school. And it may be because schools, uh, they're, they're in a controlled cohort. There's very strict testing. There are, in fact, very good mitigation measures in place to prevent transmission. And, and in, in, it sounds sort of funny, but the kids aren't running around doing other things. Uh, so, as I say, it's not the transmission within the schools that seems to be the problem. It's, it's unfortunately uh, the transmission outside of the schools that's the issue. I, I found the letter that, uh, that you co-authored with a yeah. number of the doctors very uh, informative. And, and it, it, I think it shed a different perspective on a number of things, Doctor. And, and uh, to your point uh, about what's going to happen now for the next two weeks, of course, so that, that there won't be schools. Uh, the online learning, I guess, is going on, but we can get yeah. into that. That's another debate altogether. But I, I guess the question a lot of parents, concerned parents are asking right now is, well, if they're not in school, where are they? And are they going to be more exposed to this than they would be if they were in the school environment? Well, and sure, that's one of the issues, and and a lot of us uh, who work with children and and all of us who wrote that letter, in addition to our concerns about COVID and the community transmission, we we can't dismiss the harm being done to our children, the long-term harm, because the, the... We have a pandemic of COVID, but we have a pandemic of mental health issues in our children. We have increasing suicides. We have increasing overdoses. We have a huge increase since it started in children presenting with eating disorders, uh, which is obviously another manifestation of a mental health problem. And so it is a balance of all of these things. And so when we advocate return to school, it's based on, number one, yes, the children are in, in a safe, controlled environment data from Ontario and from around the world have consistently demonstrated that schools are not the amplifiers of the virus. And by having children in having in-class learning, we are in some ways trying to 
minimize the amount of harm that's happening to our children, not because they're getting COVID, but because of our response and, and, and our other uh, measures that are happening to control it. This is huge, and it's going to be lifelong for some of these children. And so the conversation about schools is not just the immediate uh, question about whether or not shutting them is going to control the spread, and, and most of us work in pediatrics are skeptical that closing schools is going to make much difference, if any. But we are profoundly concerned about what's happening to our children long term. It's part of the problem here, maybe some of the confusion, Doctor, because of the fact that we've done such a lousy job, uh, especially in Ontario, but even Canada-wide, of contact tracing uh, to understand exactly where this is from. In other words, if a, if a student, uh, even an elementary student, were to test positive for this, uh, statistically going to say, well, there's another case in schools. But is it? Or is it because mom and dad weren't following the protocol and they tested positive and, of course, the child got it from them? That, that, yeah. that really has nothing at all to do with the school environment, but, but they get painted with that same brush. Yeah, yeah. And we also have to be a little bit careful about about sort of saying people aren't following the protocols because there are a lot of people who who are mandated to work. I mean, we, we, we work in essential yeah. services. I mean, we've had outbreaks in hospitals, and it's not because people are floating the rules. It's because sometimes it's bad luck. There are a large number of, of parents who simply can't stay home to work. There are a lot of people who live in crowded conditions. There are a lot of people who are dependent on public transit. And it's it's i think we just have to be very careful about saying my sense is that the people who are actually flouting the rules are actually the, the minority of people and most people are actually doing their best but it's challenging and and also as we come into winter we know that all respiratory virus is always are transmitted uh, to a greater extent in winter because of course our climate we're much more likely to be indoors we're much more likely to have a, a longer contact with people but yes, if if we have two cases, in a, to get back to the schools, if we have two cases in a classroom, we have to be very careful in, in if we start to, to do this kind of increased testing to be sure we understand where these cases are actually coming from and is the transmission within the classrooms or is it just that we have two, two cases. There are studies that could be done to this. We could actually do... Um, uh, you know, further probing into the actual viruses to know if it's it, the exact virus or if there's slight mutations that would argue that it's two different strains. Certainly that could be done, but that would require uh, somebody to actually do very um, specific research and, and uh, have the equipment and the people to do that. Uh, and I say that only because, of course, everybody who works in a lab is pretty much on working at a 300% capacity to, um, to just deal with our, our normal flow of COVID testing. Certainly we could do that. Uh, but again, I, I think at this point, the evidence that we've seen in Ontario and around the world is that schools are safe. Uh, not that they're perfect, but that they're very safe. Our children are certainly safe from COVID. Uh, and really, maybe we should be looking at some of the structural issues outside of schools and workplaces and why, why we're seeing transmission there. What are some of the barriers uh, where we have had outbreaks? Uh, we haven't done a lot of that. We don't have... Uh, consistent and safe places for people to isolate if they're if they're being told to isolate. And some people, if we tell them they have to isolate, but they live in in a multi generational home or or conversely a single parent, they can't not be around their children. Mm-hmm. We have very inconsistent sick leave uh, for people if they're sick, but we we have even less consistent uh, payments or any kind of financial. Uh, security for people who have to stay home in quarantine for 14 days. So there are lots of structural issues in the community that probably be much higher yield 
uh, in terms of, of decreasing transmission long term than simply keeping a child out of school. All right, we have been told from day one, and maybe it's a lesson that we've maybe forgotten over the, the last nine or ten months now, uh, that even if we do follow all the protocols, if we do wash our hands numerous times, if we do face mask, if we do the social distancing, uh, there's no guarantee uh, in anything no. to do with this. I mean, that that will mitigate the, the chances of it, but it doesn't eliminate the chances of it. So that you're right, there could be somebody who's playing by the rules totally and, and could still test positive uh, because of some exposure to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Which begs the question about, again, let's go back to this two-week uh, period now where the kids should be in school but they're not uh, because of the government decision from last week uh, is daycare. Uh, parents that were expecting their children to go back to school may have to make alternative arrangements. Yep. Uh, we know that there's a shortage of, of daycare spaces in the province right now. The government's talked about that but they haven't done a whole lot about it as of yet. Uh, you're running the risk here now of, of kids that may not be able to have daycare so they're gonna parents are gonna say well it could bring them over to my house I'm staying home anyway uh, which is really kind of contrary to what we wanted to do in the first place so I mean that really in, in however the good intentions the government might have had they might actually be making a, a bad situation worse for those students well unfortunately this is very true and certainly for families I mean there's major work implications and I can sympathize with with uh, in a situation where people are have to work if they're going to feed their family. And so, yes, we probably will start to see things like unofficial daycares. As I say, most of us uh, in, the, in the pediatric world were, were disappointed at the uh, prolonged closure. Um, I, I think there are lots of, of decision-making I, I, you know, issues that were presumably considered, but we were surprised. Well, the other element to this, and I'm glad you touched on this because it was one of the things that I took away from the letter that uh, that you and your fellow doctors wrote about this, uh, is is the consideration about you know whatever the government's rationale for doing this for the next two weeks is, uh, is the long term implications and the cost, both uh, physical and psychological and financial, frankly, mm-hmm. of dealing with the uh, the after effects of this. And you've talked about some of the things that uh, could be happening, uh, teen suicides and, uh, and concerns of this nature. And I know that the helplines are there, but uh, again, it's maybe. An unintended consequence, but a consequence nonetheless. It's a huge consequence. This is one of the, I think, something that hasn't been communicated as well as I wish it had been to, to the public, is that COVID, we clearly have a problem with this. I mean, nobody's going to minimize that. But it's a virus that, as I said, it it, it simply is not, co- it's extremely uncommon for it to cause severe disease in a child. For, for, for children and teenagers, influenza is unquestionably worse and, and, and has a higher mortality. So more children die of influenza, than, and certainly in Canada and the U.S., if we look at the numbers, than, than of COVID. And so the, that they're, being, they're not at risk from the virus in particular. It's, it's the consequences of what we're doing to them. So in Ontario, we have not had a child die as a result of COVID. There was one child that died with COVID, but that was not the the cause of death. But we have had suicides and drug overdoses. So the mortality in our teenagers is higher because of the effects of lockdown than from the virus. And and so I understand, you know, and and, in no way to minimize the impact of the virus on the elderly. But but we do have to look very carefully at the consequences of some of these measures we're putting in place. Because if the net result is one that causes worse health outcomes and more deaths in an age group, as, as is the case with young people, then we need to think very carefully about, is this the right measure? And this is where 
consideration of schools has to be not just COVID or no COVID, but can we control the transmission of COVID as best we can, which has been done extremely well by the schools, understanding that there may be the occasional case, but that the benefit of schooling for our children far outweighs any risk. It's an important part of the conversation, this open letter, and uh, we uh, encourage the government to reread this. And, uh, well, I guess we're going to get some information from them tomorrow about their uh, protocol going forward. Doctor, thank you so much for your, uh, you for your much input for into this. Me. And I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this today. Have a great day. My pleasure. You too. Take care. Dr. Martha Fulford, of course, pediatric infectious disease specialist at McMaster Children's Hospital. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus now on what's going on with the problems here in the province of Ontario. We're told that tomorrow uh, the Premier is going to make some announcements about possibly some new protocols that are going on. And one of the obviously contributing factors here is going to be the fact that uh, notwithstanding the advice that we got before the Christmas holidays that we had to stay in place, experts now say the holiday period accelerated what was already an alarming trajectory of new cases. Uh, Global's Tina Trajani has the latest findings. 48% of Canadians say they left their home base over the holidays and visited with friends and family. Some did once, and others admit they did so several times. It's not clear if more people decided to leave home after hearing about politicians who travelled outside of the country. The number was slightly higher in Ontario. 53% say they went to another household. We won't know what effect these visits will have on COVID-19 case counts for a few more days at least. As for how the government is handling the pandemic, 62% approve of the federal response and 57% of Ontarians are giving Premier Doug Ford the thumbs up. Tina Trojani, Global News. Well, not everybody seems to be on side with this and the numbers seem to indicate that. So where do we go from here? And, and you know, I know we don't want to point fingers, but I think we have to be frank about exactly what's happening and why it's happening. Uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Michael Warner. Dr. Warner is the head of ICU at uh, Michael Guerin Hospital. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Uh, Happy New Year to you. First time we've talked for a few days. Your reaction, Doctor, to the numbers that we're seeing now over the holiday period? Well, unfortunately, Bill, this is as expected. They delayed the lockdown by five days, which I think gave people permission to not only shop but also congregate, since it gave the impression that the government didn't think this was a serious situation as it is. And the modeling data tomorrow and what has been reported in other media outlets has shown that people did get together, people have shopped, and I you know, we're yet to really see the impact of that in the ICU per se, but we're definitely seeing it at our assessment centers where the majority of people who test positive for COVID-19, at least at our hospital assessment center, uh, admit that they congregated over the holidays with people outside their household. And this will lead to an increase in case counts, which will lead to an increase in hospitalizations, subsequently ICU admissions and deaths. Uh, let's let's talk about that. I want to talk about the impact it's going to have on facilities like yours in just a couple of minutes, Doctor. But let's get right back to this and about attitude. Uh, and, and we've talked, and I know a lot of people have been talking over the last week or so, uh, about the number of high-profile individuals that are now admitting that, yeah, we traveled outside the country, not just outside of their, their, their domiciles, uh, going to St. Bart's or wherever the case might be. Uh, I, I don't know what the human condition is or the human psyche, but when people hear a situation like that, is there a propensity for us to say, well, hell, if they're doing it, I guess I can do it too? I guess, I guess some people will look at people, at others in leadership positions, whether they be at a hospital um, or in government, 
uh, or some type of public serving role and say, you know, if it was okay for them, it's okay for me. I hope people don't do that because I think everyone needs to think for themselves and make their own decisions based on what they think they should be doing based on the advice they receive. But it is hypocritical for people uh, to, you know, do as I say, not as I do. And uh, that's unfortunate. And people, I think, have paid political and personal prices for that. I think we have to move forward. We'll probably learn about more people who traveled. You know what? They made a bad decision that will uh, that reflects poorly on them. But we do have to move forward because that travel has already occurred. What we need to focus on now is if people do return from traveling, that they quarantine and, and obey quarantine and that they don't continue to travel uh, so they can stay consistent with the public health advice. There was, uh, infectious disease is going to be such a tricky thing here. And, I, you know, I, people who think they know a lot about it probably don't. I remember years ago, Doctor, just a, a quick little sidebar here. I did an interview many, many years ago with the late Dr. Linus Pauling. It was a, an infectious disease specialist for many, many years. And, and I asked him, I said, how come every time people go on holidays to the south, they come back and they get sick? And he said, it's because they're exposed to different germs in different parts of the world. He says they didn't get sick when they got home. They contracted it while they were away, and it manifested itself when they got home. That's why people always say, to get colds or something after they go down to, well, St. Bart's or someplace like this. We're really increasing our opportunities or our chances to contract this virus if we go to a different place where there's a different set of circumstances, we're breathing different air and seeing different people. You know, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist or infectious disease doctor, but I would say that the, the only reason why there are variants in Canada is because of travel, and some of that travel uh, could be deemed essential or could be due to goods uh, moving across our borders, sure. but... Uh, I mean, that's that's how the virus entered Canada in the first place. And as new variants emerge and continue to circulate, uh, they have been introduced by people who uh, have entered Canada either as visitors or Canadians returning home. And uh, I guess the concern is that the new variants, and I think there are probably several of them, uh, could be more transmissible, uh, probably not more deadly, but if more people get COVID-19, then just mathematically more people will get sick and ultimately die. Let's talk about the impact it's having on, on facilities like hospitals, et cetera. I mean, the numbers, the projections, I guess, uh, more to the point, Doctor, that we're seeing right now are rather troubling about what could happen, and they're suggesting within the next two to three weeks, in other words, maybe the early part of February, we could see some catastrophic numbers if we don't uh, change what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. that The Premier's sitting on modeling, and I have no idea what type of leadership style this is, whereby you have pretty damning modeling that shows that we have a crisis of unparalleled proportions in the province, and you don't share that information with the people you're supposed to protect. I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite disappointed in that, and, and then that's me being careful with the words that I'm using. Well, uh, I, I share that disappointment, and maybe I, I should use a stronger word. Yeah. I, as I heard that over the weekend, I thought, this is this is not promoting some TV show for next week. Hey, in next week's episode, uh, he says, on Tuesday, I'm going to bring you up to speed, and you'll be shocked. Well, shock us now. Tell us what's going on right here and now. Yeah, well, I, you know, to be honest, Bill, the, whatever modeling they show tomorrow, which someone has leaked to, you know, the CBC, so it's out there, um, is not that inconsistent with what ha- was presented on December 21st. So he knew and they knew that we had a high probability of being in the situation we're in today, you know, two or three weeks ago, and they still chose to delay implementing, you know, the, the kind of lockdown we had. What we need is we need a more significant lockdown that emulates wave one. We need to reduce people's mobility. There are 409 patients in Ontario ICUs right now with COVID-19. Again, there's a geographic uh, uh, focus on the GTA, Hamilton as well, Niagara for sure, 
London, Kitchener, Waterloo, Windsor, Essex, those are the hot spots. Those are where most people live. And again, having beds in Ottawa, Kingston, Thunder Bay, Sudbury doesn't help you. This concept of load sharing whereby, you know, we're going to be able to magically move patients across the province isn't practical when you have a finite number of critical care transport teams who are able to do that and when the distances are so significant in our province. You know, we have you know, 14.7 ICU beds for 100,000 people in Ontario. L.A. County has 25 and right now they're doing triage. That means that there's, you know, some, they're deciding really who gets life support and who doesn't. And it's projected in Ontario that we're going to be in that type of situation at 550. And that's going to happen. We are going to reach 550. We'll blow past it. And, you know, the Premier knows this. And I don't understand why he isn't doing everything he can to prevent that from happening, to protect Ontarians, to protect healthcare workers from having to be involved in those types of terrible decisions. Um, it's, uh, I really don't have any words for it. You know, right now we're holding on. There's elasticity within the system, but we're already rationing care. I mean, canceling a cancer surgery so that, you know, a woman who needs a mastectomy to save her from, save her from breast cancer, who gets stage four breast cancer a year from now, I mean, that's, that will seal her fate. And that's, those are the decisions that are being made right now. We're prioritizing the potential COVID patient over the cancer patient who needs an operation today. So if people don't think that this is having an impact, they're wrong. It's having an impact right now, and that impact is going to worsen over time. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I maybe need to clarify some terminology here, Doctor. Uh, when we heard during the first wave, and I guess we're heading towards that now, about canceling e- quote-unquote elective surgeries, I think in a lot of people's minds, at least a lot of the people that, that uh, I've been talking to over the last number of months, seems to me, well, that's inconsequential surgery, maybe getting a you know the plastic surgery or something like this, or you want to get... Uh, this is could well be life-and-death situations. It may not imminent, but as you say, a number of cancer surgeries, uh, cancer diagnoses and things of this nature, going by the board. I mean, the long-term implications of that are, are, are frightening, really. Yeah, I'll be crystal clear. So we had a surgical backlog that was going to take, I think, 18 to 24 months to get through from wave one. We didn't get through that in the summer period of time between wave one and wave two. And today in Ontario, and actually for a couple months at some hospitals, cancer surgeries have been delayed. If you delay cancer surgery, uh, cancer being, uh, sorry, surgery being the most effective way to cure certain types of cancers, then people will die. They'll need chemotherapy and radiation, but that it may be less likely to save their life and they will die. So, uh, you know, those surgeries are elective, but elective only means that you don't need the surgery in the next, you know, one hour to save your life. A non-elective surgery is you show up to our emergency department with a hole in your colon and, and you need an emergency colectomy to save your life. That's, that's non-elective surgery. Those are the things we're still able to do. But everything else is on the table in terms of being canceled. And, and that could include cardiac surgery. It could include transplant surgery. It could include neurosurgery. Those are the things that are kind of in the crosshairs. And if you're a patient waiting for these, they're not elective in your mind. And I don't think they should be in anyone's. Well, it's it's akin to basically ignoring a, a physical problem that you have, and I've talked to a number of surgeons uh, earlier this year uh, when they, this started to increase again, the numbers started to increase, that they're very frustrated by this because they understand that the surgery needs to be done ASAP, but they simply can't do it. I mean, when the hospital shuts down and basically says, uh, you know, life and death situations only, uh, there's this feeling among the medical profession, the doctors and nurses I've talked to, and I'm sure your staff feels the same way, doctor. They they feel uh, as if they're, they're letting themselves down and letting the patient down in situations like that. But the numbers dictate that we can't accommodate everybody uh, when, when these numbers start to increase like this. Yeah, there's a huge amount of moral distress among healthcare workers in general. I'm sure surgeons definitely feel it because 
uh, they meet with their patients for sometimes months, even you know years before certain types of surgeries as disease progresses, and they they create a contract with that patient that they're going to do their best to fix them, and they get a date and they plan for it, and then all of a sudden that date is cancelled. Or, you know, they meet with the surgeon and he or she says that you need to have this biopsy or some type of diagnostic test to see if you have a problem I can fix. And then that doesn't happen because of constraints within the healthcare system. So, you know, you multiply that up, you know, over hundreds or thousands of, of patient care encounters and, and we've got a big problem. So it all goes to say, you know, we, we are in an unprecedented moment in this province, and this is not the time to sit with your cabinet like Premier Ford is right now, mulling over, you know, what is essential, what isn't. This is the time to make swift action, take decisive action. Don't threaten us with what is going to happen. Tell us what the information is and make the move. I think politically, people in general are ready for more restrictions because I think people in general are starting to get the message that this is a big deal. There will always be outliers, and, and those people will never be reached, and they have, they're entitled to feel what they feel. But I think the majority of people are looking for more restrictions as a way to protect themselves and the people they care about. Well, there's another story of the weekend. You were talking about the overload in Los Angeles area. Uh, another doctor who committed suicide over the weekend uh, because of the stress and, and the frustration. That I, I, as his co-worker said, after the sad fact of, of the, the suicide was announced, uh, but you know the, the pressure that's on medical professionals and it's not an isolated case. I mean, it's it's having an impact on just about everybody. So where do we go from here? Uh, as I say, we we will be blessed with a, a new. Uh, in protocol from the province, I guess, sometime tomorrow uh, when the Premier makes his announcement. Quebec has already enacted a, a, a curfew, uh, which is something that Australia and New Zealand did uh, way back in the, in the spring of last year uh, to try to fight this thing. Is, is, is it an effective way to deal with this? Is it finally bringing the hammer down and, and, and doing what we need to have done here? So people will debate the benefits of a cur- curfew. Lots of doctors disagree. I, my position on curfews is that the only thing that matters are the details. So the details of the curfew in Australia, you know, highly limited mobility within five kilometers of your place of residence. Only one person allowed to leave, I believe, once a day or perhaps once a week for essential shopping. You know, that's completely different from what's happening in Quebec. No geographic restrictions. You know, you can go shopping multiple times a day, um, you know, within the non-curfew hours. So it really depends on what the details are. The fundamental goal is to reduce the people's mobility so they're less likely to interact with others. And depending on your jurisdiction, the culture and morals of the or of the jurisdiction you're in, what people will accept politically, you have to create rules to limit mobility, to limit interaction. So that will be different in Ontario versus Quebec. That will be different in Canada versus Australia. But the goal has to be to limit interaction. And people also need to follow the rules. I mean, there's, there are people who've shown a blatant disregard for the rules, and those actions have consequences. All those gatherings that people saw pictures of on Facebook and Instagram, I mean, those, the, those gatherings do add up. And, it's what, and I think I've said this on your show before, the people that I cared for in Wave 1 and the first half of Wave 2 are people who generally didn't have a choice. They're essential workers. They live in mm-hmm. small apartments. And, and once they brought COVID home, everyone in their family got it. And then people chose to put themselves in a situation that my patients couldn't avoid. And now we're starting to see those cases and you know, potentially more transmissible COVID-19 in the community. And it's going to lead to an explosion in case numbers and, unfortunately, uh, an increase in hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and, and deaths. So where are we going? It's bad. It's going to be really bad for the next two, three months. And I don't think that vaccines will pull us out of this probably until the summer. Based on the supply chain issues, I also question whether the province is able to scale up. You know, if they got 250,000 vaccines every day for the next week, would they be able to handle that? Uh, 
it's not clear that they can. So uh, the vaccines are, are not going to pull us out of this in the foreseeable future either. Well, and we were told that right from the beginning, really. And it's, the, by the way, the same in the States as it is up here in Canada, that it's going to be summertime uh, and probably late summer before these things are readily available to the majority of Canadians and Americans, for that matter, too. And I think President-elect Biden made that point the other day during one of his media conferences. So we, we I guess, can't really rely on any false sense of security here. Uh, and I guess what we're looking for here is leadership. And, and when you've got political leaders who vacillate on this and say, well, I'm afraid I might get some pushback if we actually, you know, go hard on this. Uh, that's not what we need at this stage. The, the places, as you've mentioned many times to us, doctor, that have been effective in dealing with this are the ones that did get tough with it right from the beginning. Yeah, I don't think any country has been perfect, but I think that, you know, take a country like Israel. Israel didn't do a great job, actually, in the first round. They probably opened schools too early. Mm-hmm. But for a number of reasons, including their preferential geography, they've been able to deploy vaccines to a significant portion of their population, uh, lightning quick. And uh, so they've been able to kind of overcome uh, their initial uh, challenges by making up for it to some degree by deploying vaccines. I can't really think of anything that we've done uh, well or proactively. I think the people who work within the systems, the laboratory workers, the leaders in healthcare, uh, the healthcare workers, public health, the people on the ground, they're all doing an incredible job. But when it comes to leadership, there's been an abject failure and, uh, and also um, a lack of any desire to have experts provide input and to steer the ship correctly. I think that uh, you know, Premier Ford wants to own the success of this, but if he doesn't get help, he's going to own the failure too. And uh, you know, I'm speaking pretty strongly today because uh, the fact that he's sitting on data and wasting time is really inexcusable. Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program, always insightful, and we always appreciate your perspective on this. Please uh, stay well, and uh, again, our thanks to you and your staff and uh, healthcare workers everywhere who are doing what needs to be done to get this done. Thanks so much for this. Take care, Bill. Take care. Dr. Michael Warner, head of ICU at uh, Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto. And uh, it's uh, it's getting to be a pretty rough situation. I mean, the numbers are going up, and you've seen the projections, and I know the Premier's going to talk about those projections, and I share Dr. Warner's concern uh, if they're tragic, as, as he seemed to indicate, and they're going to knock us off our seats, why are we waiting four days before he tells us that? And that's just, just, just a on a new protocol. I mean, I mean, action now, not action three or four days from now. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of people, I guess, are banking on the fact that, well, the vaccine's here and we're all going to be fine in just a few months. Not necessarily the case, although, of course, we're hearing from our government officials and leaders over the last couple of days. Prime Minister Trudeau has reiterated his prediction that anybody that wants a vaccine should have it by September. We're hoping for uh, 3 million Canadians to be vaccinated by the end of March. Uh, and into the spring, uh, we hope to see many, many more millions of Canadians vaccinated as well. But uh, we hold to uh, September uh, as the date in which every Canadian who wants one uh, will be able to have gotten a vaccine. Okay, that's at the the federal level. And I know that we have some provinces uh, that are concerned about this, including Ontario Premier Doug Ford, who says that they're going to run out of vaccines by uh, the end of the week. And uh, that's something that, by the way, uh, the federal minister in charge says is not really accurate because there's more on the way. But uh, the bottom line here is we're all worried about when is it going to happen and when are we going to be able to roll up our sleeves and get the vaccinations that we're talking about. And a lot of that has to do with how the uh, the local health agencies are working on this. And I want to focus in on what's going on here in the Hamilton area for a few minutes. And hopefully this is uh, going to add some clarity to what's going on. Uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program Paul Johnson, who is the Director of Emergency Center for Hamilton and uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. 
Yeah, great to be with you, Bill. Happy Monday. And to you, too. Uh, hopefully it will be. Let's, uh, the numbers are staggering. We've talked about the projections, and I guess we're going to get some hard and fast numbers, and uh, you'll obviously have to respond to that as well. But I want to talk about the vaccination and the rollout program. Uh, an awful lot of people in this area, Paul, were very frustrated uh, when the province announced uh, that they were having uh, what they call a priority hot zone vaccination program uh, that included Toronto, Peel, York, and Windsor, Essex. And not Hamilton, even though we're in lockdown mode here because of the number of cases, we weren't included in that. Did you get any, or you or Dr. Richardson, get any sort of an explanation as to why we were left out of that? Uh, so, Bill, the reality is in these early stages, it is about the amount of vaccine that's available. So there is there is uh, there's more on the way, and it keeps coming. But uh, you know, everybody's having to prioritize based on the amounts that are available, whether that's locally uh, or whether that's uh, provincially. I will say the good news is, though, that uh, we've been working very hard locally and, and in fact, are continuing to vaccinate in large numbers uh, healthcare workers, uh, both in long-term care facilities and our hospital sector. And uh, yesterday, we were able to expand uh, the vaccination program and begin to vaccinate residents of long-term care facilities. So while it, um, you know, we didn't uh, receive the, the, the tap on the shoulder quite as quickly as maybe some other communities, who quite frankly, some of them uh, do have higher numbers of cases than we do, uh, we were really pleased yesterday to start exactly what other places are doing, and that is a, a goal to vaccinate uh, all the residents of long-term care and some priority retirement homes uh, within the next week or so. I wanted to make that point, too, because I don't want people to think that, oh, my God, you know, we don't have anything going on here. Uh, given the uh, the supply that you have here, you, the, you're embarking on a pretty aggressive program here, aren't you? We are. Uh, each and every day, seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day, the fixed-site uh, vaccination program that's being delivered by Hamilton Health Sciences uh, is uh, continuing to vaccinate uh, workers, those who can go there. The challenge, of course, for long-term care residents is uh, we can't move them to a, a mm -hmm. fixed site. So being able to uh, receive re revised guidelines, as Dr. Richardson did, about how to uh, effectively uh, move the vaccine to people as opposed to moving people to the vaccine uh, was a game-changer over the weekend. And I don't use that word often because after 10 months of this, um, you know, there haven't been too many game changers, but I can tell you that the game changer of being able to get into long-term care facilities, uh, vaccinate residents within the long-term care facilities, both with the Pfizer uh, BioNTech uh, vaccine and um, uh, we're hearing this week we'll have the Moderna vaccine available to do uh, the same piece. Uh, this is good news. And yes, the team uh, working with our primary care uh, uh, colleagues, working with paramedics, working with our public health units are out there doing these clinics. And the expectation is that uh, within a seven to 10 day period, uh, all of our long-term care and some of those high priority retirement homes uh, will have their residents uh, vaccinated. And that's a credit to everybody who's been working hard on the preparation of this. And that's where our energies have been focused. How do we get ready for this? Uh, the politics is the politics bill, but uh, I'm really, I, I was excited to hear it. Um, talking to people, you could hear the excitement yesterday, but I'll tell you, I think people were so excited about this next phase of vaccination getting into long-term care facilities that I could even hear the excitement through texts and emails. It's getting to be that point. The goal, that, uh, the stated goal, was uh, well a week from today, the 18th of January. Are you still on target to do that? Uh, they are. Uh, yesterday went extremely well. And so we called yesterday a pilot for, for the very reason of, you know, mm -hmm. you have to see how these things work. Uh, 
and and we uh, had nothing but good good news in terms of working with long-term care facilities because of course they have to be prepared they have to have consents in place they have to be ready uh, from their um, perspective for the uh, for, for for people to come on site and then of course the delivery of the vaccine and so all of that worked really well yesterday and any of those uh, operational kinks uh, will be ironed out and so we can do uh, even more and continue to go and it's been uh, credit to the whole system of people that can deliver vaccines, uh, be that paramedic, be that our primary care partners, uh, that uh, they're stepping up to the plate as well. In fact, I had a primary care physician say that when a call out went for volunteers, uh, for family physicians to, to join the charge, by the time he had replied, which wasn't very long, uh, they already had filled up all of the slots. So that's a real testament to how people want to come together uh, because part of the challenge we have outside of the actual vaccination being there in volume is also having people available to do these clinics and ensure that we can uh, vaccinate as many people as possible, particularly in these early stages. Paul, there's an awful lot of facilities just in this area alone. Do you, do you prioritize which facility is going to be uh, 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 vaccinated yet? I know you, we talked about Idlewild as, as one of the parts of this uh, pilot program that you guys put under place, Idlewild Manor, uh, is others. But there are so many others here. Uh, do you base this on statistics or is it just uh, randomly? Or how do, you, how do you decide where you're going to go and when you're going to get there? So it isn't completely random, the sequencing of this. I mean, the reality is it's happening over a fairly small number of days, but uh, the team does take into account uh, the risk of COVID-19 transmission. As you know, not all long-term care facilities are built the same way. Uh, so some that have, uh, you know, multi-person uh, ward care, uh, the transmission is much more um, possible when you have two or four people in a, in a room. And so uh, that's been reduced by by uh, policy, but uh, there's still some areas where the physical layout of the home um, may may not be as safe as others. So those are prioritized. Previous and current outbreak status is uh, factors in, as well as just the simple things of scheduling logistics um, in order to complete it as soon as possible. But the reality is is that uh, you know being at the at the head of the line or middle point or even at the back of the line is still uh, it, we're talking within days now, not weeks or months. So this is a good news story for the 27 long-term care homes in, in Hamilton. And then the retirement homes, not all of them will be part of this wave, but some of those uh, high-risk ones, uh, again, looking at that prioritization, uh, will be involved as well. So uh, it's going to happen swiftly, uh, but it does uh, have a, a number of pieces that are looked at in terms of who goes first. What's the uptake like on this? I mean, this is not a mandatory vaccination, uh, and you can decline it. Have you heard of any incidences where people have said no thanks? Uh, there will be along along the way, but the uh, the expected participation rate of residents of long-term care facilities is into the 90s, so 90% uh, range. So there are always those who, who choose not to, but I think that, uh, you know, what we what we see for participation, and this has happened in other vaccines as well, but uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Richardson uh, has let me know that they expect a very, very high take-up. Uh, we still need to work with our with our staff uh, components and make sure that we're answering the questions that they have about it as well, so that we see all healthcare staff, um, uh, you know, getting those numbers up in terms of vaccination as well through the other site. But yeah, it, we expect a very strong uptake. Uh, we go into long-term care facilities or retirement homes, uh, really expecting that uh, almost every single person that's in the home will receive this. And, and this is the good news of this: is that uh, we can quickly get this done and look at uh, those those numbers and, and and get that done by uh, by next Monday. 
Who is not going to get this? You mentioned that there are going to be some uh, residential or retirement homes that may not uh, get the vaccine. Is because they don't qualify under the criteria that have been set up? A lot of it right now is about volume, Bill, and okay. and just having to, to watch the numbers in terms of vaccines. So, you know, the goal of this is always to get it out as much as possible. But right now, there just are limited supplies, and that's everywhere, whether you're uh, prioritized or not, even in those prioritized areas. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not for a huge swath of the public. It was to make sure long-term care facilities and and because retirement homes are uh, fall into very different categories, those have to be prioritized just a little bit differently. We hope to get into some of those very quickly. But the ultimate goal is that it will roll through every retirement home in all congregate settings. We have you know, residential care facilities and group homes and emergency shelters that will eventually need to get in, in this uh, as well. But you know, very clearly in the early stages of this, Bill, uh, long-term care facilities and, and some retirement homes have been hit very, very hard with this. And if you look at the outbreaks that we still have going on in Hamilton, uh, we need to prioritize this uh, uh, very, very quickly. Paul, as we look at some of the pictures uh, south of the border where uh, there's, a, again, a number of uh, concerns being raised about the, the, the rollout of the vaccine program, and I think even the, the medical experts down in the states at the Center for Disease Control and other places are uh, bemoaning the fact that the, the the vaccination program is not going the way they had hoped that it would. Uh, what's, I, I, I'm assuming, as I know you and Dr. Richardson quite well for many, many years, uh, that, the, that you're also, as you're doing this uh, with your other hand, uh, you're working on a rollout program as this starts to expand. I mean, we talked about long-term care facilities and, and high-risk places. Uh, what's plan, what's uh, part two of this? What's the second phase? Who do you target in situations like this? And, and, and as, as this goes on, the prioritization will continue, I would think. It does, and very much we're following the uh, provincial uh, timing and phasing and pacing of this. And so, you know, you, we've talked a lot about what the priority today is in terms of, of health workers, uh, health care workers, and long-term care facilities and, and retirement homes, but it will continue to expand. Congregate settings are obviously a key priority for uh, for the province and for us locally because of the risk of transmission within those within those settings. Uh, but then it gets to other high-priority groups in terms of it could be uh, from, from a workplace perspective, some first responders and others, and then it continues to build. Uh, I mean, the message for most Hamiltonians is, uh, this isn't something you need to be putting into your scheduler for the next couple of weeks. Uh, this is going to come many months down the road. In fact, for most of us, late spring and into the summertime for sure. But for those who are in uh, high-risk categories, for those who, who are uh, elderly but uh, not in, in care facilities, uh, you know that expectation is more uh, towards the end of winter and into the early part of the spring. And as I said before, it'll all depend on volume. I mean, you can't get into those logistics and you can't get into those pieces of work until we know that we have uh, large amounts of vaccine present. Um, certainly the expectation provincially and federally is that that will be there and this will roll out as quickly as it needs to be. But I can't say enough about the team that Dr. Richardson assembled. It is not just public health. It is a wide array of people uh, who are there. I can't say enough about Hamilton Health Sciences. You know, as of yesterday, 5,700 um uh, vaccines have been administered uh, by Hamilton Health Sciences at their fixed site state. So I, I think sometimes people feel it's, it's a couple hundred here, or a couple hundred here. No, we're into the thousands of people vaccinated in Hamilton. But it is, of course, the small prioritized uh, groups at the moment because that's the amount of vaccine that we have.
In a situation like this, I want to maybe direct an email that I got the other day, Paul, that maybe you can shed some light on here. Uh, for instance, if you go to a retirement home, long-term care facility, whatever the case might be, uh, you know the residents there are going to get this. But what about somebody who is uh, elderly, maybe in their 60s, 70s, whatever the case might be, with pre-existing conditions, which are the criterion that you and so many others have talked about, th- who should move toward the front of the of this lineup here, but they don't live in one of those facilities. Uh, how do they get into the queue here do they do they go through their family doctor they just how does something like that roll out somebody who might be higher risk than than the average person in the population so for those individuals i mean it's still a little time away but uh, they would be obviously uh, a higher priority than other individuals in the community exactly how those types of of populations will be uh, vaccinated is still being discussed and those plans are still uh, because they're not happening as they say in the next few days or even in the next mm-hmm. few weeks uh, we have a little bit of time and so exactly how we will deliver this but uh, you know the province has, has delivered vaccine broadly in a number of ways and we do so every year through the flu clinics as well or through flu uh, vaccines so I think you can see um, the potential for many of the existing ways that we've delivered vaccine in the past to be utilized. But in terms of those plans, they're still being developed. And I think when people don't see, you know, in front of them right today what, what, it, what it means for them, it's not a sense that there isn't the work happening. It's really the sequencing that we have to go through. And because the people that you just talked about are not going to be in line for a vaccine in the next couple of weeks, uh, we just start taking the time to build those plans out and also align with the province. In many ways, this is uh, being uh, directed by the province, and that's the way it should be to ensure that all areas are um, are, are following a, a fairly similar approach. And then what we do locally is adjust our logistics so that we can deliver it well to the people that live, work, play, and learn in this community. Uh, so we'll take our cue from the province, and then we'll make sure that it happens here locally. But that's not going to happen in the next few days or even the next few weeks. I'm just about out of time here, but in, in our remaining couple of seconds here, I, again, to reference the United States situation, Paul, uh, we've seen long, long lineups, people lined up uh, sometimes for hours and hours in cars uh, waiting for the vaccination. Uh, is that what we can anticipate happening on this side of the border when we get towards summertime and, and the, the vaccination is going to be available to the greater public? Uh, there may be occasions with this, but I would liken this a bit to our, our testing centers where over time we've got a, we got a whole lot more uh, uh, clean in terms of how those went and we didn't have long lines where people were waiting in line for it, uh, that hopefully there could be a system in place where it's uh, more of that appointment base, less of the, you know, just come and line up. So uh, again, more to follow on that. But our goal would be not to have, you know, people having to come and, and spend hours upon hours or as I've witnessed through watching the TV news, you know, people coming at three in the morning and not getting it until late mm-hmm. in the day. Uh, those types of things are have their own risks associated with it because the one thing I'll leave you with, Bill, is that even once you receive the vaccine, uh, because we don't yet know about the uh, what it does around the transmission of COVID-19, every one of those public health measures of wearing a mask, uh, keeping physical distance, washing hands, and all the rest continue to be uh, necessary even for those who are vaccinated. Paul, as always, uh, thanks to you and your staff and to Dr. Richardson and everybody for the rollout that they're doing. It's a, a very dire circumstance, of course, that we're talking about here, and it's, uh, it's comforting to know anyway that, uh, that there is a program in place and that you're following that protocol and hitting all the deadlines. Uh, let's stay in touch. Thanks again for today. Thanks, Bill.
take care. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center for the City of Hamilton, talking about the vaccination rollout program here in this area. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.